a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Whoa, hello, and welcome to the 108th episode of Curiosityness. I'm Travis DeRose, the host, and I'm currently drinking coffee. And it's one of the six beverages that have distinguished history. That's a pretty bad intro. But uh, whatever, we'll just roll with it. I have on today Tom Standage. He is the author of a book called A History of the World in Six Glasses. And boy, oh boy, this is a fun episode. It's full of those fun little facts, did you know kind of things. But uh, just for a sneak peek, the six beverages, the six glasses are beer, wine, spirits, you know, rum, gin, stuff like that, coffee, tea, and cola. So that's it. We kind of dive through and uh, talk about how all these these beverages are connected to history, how they all are kind of connected to each other and lead into different things, how the remnants of these beverages are still around today. But like, I mean, obviously we're still drinking all these things, but like the, uh, the social customs and everything that these drinks came about and Whew, I'm having a hard time explaining it. It's, it's just a fun episode. I think you're really going to like it. I'll let Tom do the talking and explain it all. So let's get to the episode. Here is episode 108 with Tom Standage. All right, we're going. What's up, Tom? How you doing, man? Great to see you. Hello. Good to be Hello. here. Yeah, good. Good, man. Um, thanks for coming on. What a what a fun uh, topic that you have uh, unearthed for all of us to to read about here. Well, it's a very important, very important subject, close to to many people's hearts. So I'm, yes. I've come prepared. I've got my beer. So I know it's morning for you, but here in London it's evening, and so it's um it's beer o'clock. So I've got some. In fact, this is home brewed wheat beer, which is fantastic. No one. way! First batch of it I've done, and it's I'm very pleased with it. It's really, really good. So cheers! Wow, very Starting cool. As so I mean to go on brewing, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got this. I've got this amazing machine that lets me um lets me do it very, very easily. It's idiot proof. So yeah, I've been doing a lot of a lot of home brewing since Christmas. It's been good. Okay. Wow. Right on, man. That's cool. I, something I kind of wanted to get into. I got a friend who does. Well, I'm I'm drinking coffee over here. I should say it's kind of the afternoon. Felt a little too early for a beer over here. Yeah, but, fair enough. Uh, you know. Uh, but I got a friend who's doing. He's getting into uh, roasting his own beans and all that kind of stuff for coffee. So I, you know. Like something about uh, making your own beverages is just gives it a little more appreciation. Don't you think? There's there's something. I mean, honestly, these are things. I mean, food and drink. It's like has this magical significance that they're things you put inside your body. So, um, of course, you're going to pay more attention to them, and to the extent that you can build your own rituals around them. I think that's you know, I I am obsessive about brewing my pour over coffee in the morning as well. So you know. Mm-hmm. these these rituals around food and drink i think they're really important and they go back yeah you know, thousands of years tens of thousands of years so so i know we we joke about them but they are serious things it's serious it's true so yeah how did you i mean well let's just say we're talking about your book uh history of the world in six glasses uh such a fun title there it is thank you yeah, yeah. uh it just yeah it just sounds so fun but how did you you know put that together that everything is kind of connected to these six beverages so it it didn't it wasn't originally like that originally i thought it was a history of the world through wine 
And then I mm. went and looked at the history of wine. And history of wine is kind of interesting to start with. And then it kind of gets kind of boring. Um, and other drinks become more important. And so I decided not to do a history of the world through wine. I realized that other drinks, so the scientific revolution you know, the 1600s and what happens in Europe and everyone's like discovering telescopes and microscopes and that kind of stuff. And the thing they're all drinking at that point is coffee. And that obviously is nothing to do with wine. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, other periods, you know, everyone knows about the Boston Tea Party and, and tea and the British Empire and the War of Independence and all this kind of stuff. So, sorry, the Revolutionary War, as it's known on the other side of the pond. So I realised that there were different drinks that were important yeah. at different points in history. And so then I went back and kind of mapped that out. And it was clear that beer was the was the first one because beer and agriculture go together. And the idea of sort of, you know, grains are the first things that are, that are planted by farmers and the beginning of agriculture, the beginning of civilization. It's all to do with, with grains. And beer is the, you know, the important drink in in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. And then you get wine in Greece and Rome. And then I knew about this whole coffee thing. So I knew I wanted to get to coffee in the scientific revolution. And I knew that there was going to be tea and imperialism in the British Empire. And then I knew that Coca-Cola was the icon of globalization because that's just, you know, everyone knows that, right? Um, so the real problem with yep. with the with the structure of the book, and um, and this was the kind of, I remember the moment where the last jigsaw piece slotted into place was when I realised that if I did spirits, if I did all the spirits as a single drink in between wine and coffee, then it would work. I could do brandy because that's the first spirit. People figure out that if you do this chemical process to wine, you can make it into this much stronger wine. And that's something that, you know, they first figure out actually in the Arab world. So there's these, you know, chemists, alchemists in Baghdad, and they're, they're, they're trying to make the quintessence of wine. Um, so you've got that. And then that gives you brandy. But then you've also got the you know whiskey and the whole kind of whiskey thing that's happening in, in Europe and in Ireland and in Scotland. And then you get rum and the, the importance of rum in, in the American colonies, the role of rum in the slave trade and so on and so on. So I realised – and then you get gin and the whole gin epidemic in, in Britain. So I realised if you put all the spirits together – and actually, there's a reason for doing that, which is that all of them are made possible by the discovery of distillation. So distillation allows you to take one alcoholic drink like beer. You take beer and you distill it. You get whiskey. You take wine, you distill it, you get brandy. You take a kind of sugary water and distill it, you get, you get rum. Um, but I realised that since this is actually really a history of technology... Um, then once you get the, the technology of distillation, you get this new class of drinks, which are much stronger than the beer and the wine that came before. So that way you get a history of the world through three alcoholic drinks, beer, wine, and then the spirits, and then three caffeinated drinks, coffee, which is the first one to show up in the West in a kind of significant way, then tea, because it has to come further. Coffee's just coming from the Middle East, tea's coming all the way from China, and then finally Coca-Cola, which is sort of, you know, the West, America, creates its own caffeinated be beverage, which be you know becomes this global icon, it goes, goes everywhere. So that gives you a history of the world. And then there's a, a sort of parenthesis to all of this, which is the original drink, of course, was water. And then the thing that has taken over from soda since sort of 2010 or so, since the 
global financial crisis, roughly, um, is the rise of bottled water and the fact that people are obsessed with drinking mineral water, which is kind of crazy because, you know, in most of the world, we have perfectly good tap water that comes out of the tap and we can drink it and it's fine. We don't need to be importing mineral water from France. But anyway, so that's sort of the seventh drink. But that's the that's the kind of wrapper that goes around it all, that we started drinking beer because it was safer than water. And then we went through all these other drinks. And then actually mm-hmm. now we have safe water on tap, in the rich world at least. And yet many people are like, well, I don't want to drink that. I'm going to have Evian. I'm going to have, you know, Fiji water, whatever. Um, and so that gives you the kind of overall overall arc of the book. So cheers. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude, I love it. And we're that's crazy. We're coming back, you know, now that we got... That that was what was interesting is that you know all these that kind of all these drinks kind of had in common that they were a way to make water safe to drink essentially or make a beverage that was safe to drink because water just was was not very good for you I guess. Well, it wasn't always. I mean, you know, obviously people did drink water in the past, but they realized that it wasn't always safe, and they realized that you know when you were if you were a nomadic band of hunter gatherers or whether you were a Roman army that was on the march. You wanted to set up your camp and you wanted the latrines to be downstream of the place where you were taking the drinking water because otherwise you were going to have some problems. Um, so, yeah, there was always this problem that the the water and then, if you know, the first cities are established and you've got this problem that the water isn't always safe to drink. So yep. beer and wine, I mean, you know, in different ways, they make water safe to drink. Beer, you boil the water as you're making it and that makes it safer. Wine is slightly different because you're making the the juice of the grapes into an alcoholic drink. But when you then mix it with water, which is how wine was drunk for most of human history, it's you know, people thought that adding water to the wine was making the wine safe because they thought that drinking pure wine was sort of, it was too alcoholic, it was too dangerous. Actually, the opposite yeah. is true, which is that adding the water to the wine makes the water safe because you've got these natural tannins in the wine that are antibacterial and they make the, the water safe to drink. So you, this idea of water mixed with wine, it's, it's much safer. And then spirits, you know, we know that alcohol is a, is we use it now to clean wounds. We preserve things in alcohol. The idea that alcohol is a, is a, is a safe, um, you know, it's an antibacterial substance in itself. Um, clearly that's safer than drinking drinking water if, if there's nothing else to drink and then uh coffee tea you're boiling the water in order to make them and then coca-cola by that stage you're in the you know in, right. in, a, in a more modern era where you're essentially producing it as an industrial product and it's this industrialized drink and so that's a that's a different kettle of fish but yeah throughout history these these are all things that are safer to drink than water and they all have these medicinal purposes so the egyptians made medicines out of out of beer um you know the the romans used you know roman gladiators when they were wounded they would pour wine into the wounds because they knew that wine was safer to to use in that way than than water um the first distilled drinks were regarded as these sort of miraculous drinks that could cure anything um and that didn't end well for some people but you know but we still use that now we still use you know medical alcohol to clean things um so that's pure alcohol we we recognize that that's how you clean surgical instruments and that sort of thing um and then coffee was a was supposedly cured everything tea again i mean tea is widely you know regarded as a as a health drink now and then coca-cola was originally um a a headache cure um and it had it did have cocaine in it um and it had you know other herbal ingredients in it but originally it was a 
medicinal drink. And then it turned out that it, people liked it so much that they would drink it throughout the year. They would even ask for it in the winter, which is weird because sodas were meant to be something you drank in the summer. So all of them have this sort of medicinal mm-hmm. uh, quality to them as well, which we now see with with um, with mineral water as well. Bottled water is regarded as like you know the healthy drink. Um, so again, the, all of them are yeah, sort the of smart water, vitamin water. Yeah, exactly. So you've got these sort of enhanced waters, but there's this there's this long history of drinks being medicines, um, and so they all serve that purpose as well. And then they connect to all these political forces, and so just you know that was the idea that um, we're familiar with all of these drinks. In many cases, we've got them sitting in our kitchen, sitting in our cupboards, and they're relics from different periods of history. In some cases, you know, very very ancient relics and so i wanted to kind of with this book make people see the history of drinks and see the drinks that they were consuming each day in a different way and say look there's all sorts of history mixed up with these things and um and and you know one of the funny things about that is that is this is a book that this ended up on the ap world history curriculum in the u.s because it's a way of getting teenagers to read about history if you tell them that history is all about drinking suddenly they're much more interested in it so it's like you're spiking the you're spiking the the drink with history rather than spiking it with alcohol you're saying here try some of this and actually you're secretly sure. slipping <laughs> slipping them some some history um so you know that's uh that's been an unexpected benefit of this. But yeah, it, it's really kind of opening people's eyes to the fact that there's so much history in these things that we take for granted as everyday beverages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, mission accomplished, man. The book definitely conveys that. It's so fun to read. Um, and so do you think, you know, you mentioned how they kind of all, all these kind of started or had like a people thought they were curative or had medicinal stuff to them. Was it because of, you know, like you mentioned too, they all have, you know, they're not just whatever a bit like flavored water they have caffeine or alcohol in them that kind of changes your your mood or something like that is that kind of what you think attributed to their thinking that this is something crazy is going on here no i definitely so so i think with alcohol clearly it's sort of people didn't that people thought that that was magical so when we raise a when we raise a glass oh look i have one here so when we say cheers you know what we're doing it was we are we are invoking we're saying to the gods because we're assuming that the magic of alcohol comes from the gods so by raising a glass to the heavens we're saying you know bless this thing whatever it is you know when you have a celebration and you raise glasses that's what you're doing you're asking the gods to to bless whatever it is that's a very very ancient thing similarly bringing glasses together is a very very ancient thing because you're symbolically reuniting the vessels so you you know the first beer would have been served from these great great big pots and everyone would have had straws that they stuck into them because there was stuff floating on the surface and you didn't want to drink any of that and so you would be sharing the beer and mm-hmm. then when they figured out you know how to make pottery cups and how to share out the beer and all the rest of it you would be symbolically reuniting the the cups by bringing them together to say look we're drinking the same drink um and it's the same with you know a bottle of wine you serve a bottle of wine to to people and then you bring your glass together um it's the you know the ancient idea that you can tell that what i'm serving you is safe because i'm drinking from the same bottle as you it's not poisoned because you know if i'm poisoning you then i'm poisoning myself so we're drinking from the same vessel so this is really really ancient kind of idea of building trust with somebody through serving a drink and that was kind of one of the original ideas of the book which was you know if i got in a time machine and i went back Five thousand years, or ten thousand years, or to any period, frankly, and I would land in, you know, ancient Mesopotamia or Rome or whatever, and I wouldn't speak the language, and 
what would happen? I would be sort of saying, well, uh, hmm, <laughs> I have these strange clothes on. And, you know, eventually I, I hope somebody would say, look, I don't understand what you're talking about, but let's have a drink. And that would be a, uh, that would be a kind of universal language. They'd say, look, I don't know what, don't know what the hell, where you're from, what you're talking about, but this is something that we all understand. Hospitality and sitting around the table, here's some bread, here's some beer or some wine or whatever. Um, that would be something that, you know, that would be universally comprehensible. So there's a, there's a sort of magic there, definitely in the alcohol. And then similarly with caffeine, when caffeine um, and caffeinated drinks are discovered and they have this, um, this ability to sort of quicken the mind. So beer clearly slows you down and you've got people drinking alcoholic drinks essentially throughout the day for most of Western history. And then yeah. in the in the 17th century, in the 1600s, the caffeinated drinks show up and people go, wow, there's a there's a different thing we could drink first thing in the morning. So in, in Europe, in the 1600s, people were having beer for breakfast. They were making soup out of beer. It was safer to do that wow. than, than to have to have water um and then suddenly they switched to to drinking coffee first thing so instead of the thing that you drink first thing in the morning putting you to sleep it starts to wake you up so there you are having some coffee right so this idea that coffee is the is the drink of the of the information worker of the it's the drink of the intellectual it's the drink when you go to a conference what do they have in the networking break they have coffee right it's the drink that people get together to cooperate over when you have a business meeting they serve coffee right so this is the this is very again it's a few hundred years old but it's a very old idea um and then you get tea another caffeinated drink and then eventually you get coca-cola which is this sort of universal caffeinated drink that everyone could drink but um in both cases the the magic ingredient whether it's alcohol or whether it's caffeine has these sort of social associations that we still we still have we still link we still think of this idea of beer being you know the honest drink of the working man you know the you know you go to the pub in a next to a building site and everyone's got their hard hats on and they're drinking beer and the guys who built the pyramids they were paid in beer they were paid in bread and beer. We have the records that show that, that that's a very, very ancient idea that, you know, beer is the, the honest, you know, Homer Simpson drinks beer. Of course he does. Cause he's like, he's the everyman. He's the, he's the honest, you know, working class guy. And what does he want at the end of the day? He wants a beer. Um, and then wine is a bit more sort of fancy. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when the, when the boss comes to dinner, you need to get a fancy bottle of wine. So, you know, you go and get a slightly fancier bottle of wine than you normally would. And th- this is a Roman idea. This is again, a 2000 year old idea that, uh, that wine should be calibrated to the you know to the situation to the to the social class of the people who are gathered around the table so you know that this this is a very very old uh custom and so when you have uh diplomatic meetings you have you know you know the ambassador of france comes to downing street to for a you know for a for a conference or whatever what are they going to do they're going to serve wine of course they are so because that's the the highest status drink and they're going to serve the best wine they're going to serve the best wine they can find so now we have actual wine in in britain we make wine which is used to be terrible it's now actually really good so you know they're thrilled to bits because when when foreign dignitaries come to to london we can serve sparkling wine that is as good as any of the best champagnes it's it's you know and that's a real kind of you know geopolitical statement hey look at us we can make wine as well as the french um so you know there are all of these connotations associated with these with these drinks and um some of them are really surprisingly old so that's what i'm that's what i'm trying to point out to people that you don't realize it but these are there's a pieces of history, liquid history in, in your homes, in your lives. And um, if I could wake you up to those associations, then when you next drink them, then you'll see it in a different way.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's so fascinating too how the stuff has just kind of taken hold and and just held on. How like there's still kind of the wine culture, like you said, of like the higher echelon stuff, and even I think you mentioned in your book that uh, kind of how in Northern Europe it's more um, beer drinking areas and then southern europe is more wine right and that's kind of yeah that's exa- from history, another right? another kind of ancient holdover which is that you know you couldn't make wine in northern europe it was too cold um so you but you could make beer and the thing about beer is you know wine you put it in a in bottles or you know earlier you put it in these amphoras these big these clay jars and you could keep it for months or years um and we know the romans did this they would talk about different vintages of wine so they were keeping it for years decades in some cases actually centuries um but beer you cannot do that so beer beer is very different beer if you've got it you might as well drink it so you get these very different mindsets associated Mm -hmm. with these drinks with beer if you've got it now you might as well drink it so you get this kind of binge drinking drink it be happy let's just let's all you know get drunk and whereas wine is much more civilized and you have it with a meal and you think really carefully about which vintage you're going to drink and it's much more considered. So you get this sort of Southern European culture of moderate drinking of wine and you get the Northern European culture of binge drinking around beer. Um, and, you know, we still we still see that today. The You know, the way that uh, different European countries' attitudes to alcohol um, have been set. You know, it seems to be, it seems to go back centuries. Uh, I mean, it has, it has to be said, it's changing. You know, in, in, uh, in Britain, we're drinking more wine, relatively speaking, and less beer. Maybe that's because we can now make our own wine that's not so terrible. Um, but, you know, the, the whole kind of uh, <laughs> binge drinking, you, you know, you associate that with, you tend to associate that with Northern Europe, whereas Southern Europe tends to be drinking wine with food in moderation in a, in a more sort of, you know, philosophical setting. So, the the classical way of drinking wine was you know you had this the greek symposium and the philosophers all sit around and they drink wine and they try to outdo each other with their witticisms so it's a very intellectual pursuit it's not just like let's all drink lots and lots of beer and then rampage through the town singing songs it's a it's a it's a different approach but again these things have very deep historical roots and i think pointing those those things out is um you know it gives it it puts a different perspective when you when you raise a glass of whatever drink it is today, uh, to know the history really changes the way you think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I'm so fascinated by how we kind of went from, you know, we we just had water really, like that was the only there wasn't beverages available. We just had water. How do we go from that? How how does beer arrive? Is it is it literally invented? Is it accidental? What's the story on that? So yes, people would have obviously you know hunter gatherer nomadic groups would have drunk water and they would have looked for sources of fresh water um but i think what probably happened with beer i mean we obviously don't know because it predates writing so we think beer probably emerged sort of 10 15,000 years ago um you can make beer without pottery so what probably happened is um you killed an animal you've you've stripped all the meat off it you're roasting that and then you take the stomach of the animal and you could use that as a uh, essentially a cooking vessel and you put water into it and then you can throw other things into that vessel um, over a fire and you can make soup and so you know they would have put whatever they had available into that soup and if you put grains into that soup um, so you make a sort of porridge um, 
then if you left that overnight or for a couple of days and you came back to it, those grains would have naturally fermented. And somebody must have noticed this. They must have like come across a campsite that someone else had left or they must have come back to a campsite and they would have found this porridge that was a few days old and it would have been a bit fizzy um, and it would have tasted a bit strange, a bit sour. Um, but on the other hand, it would have had this wonderful sensation because it would have had alcohol in it. And this is because the grains are the yeah. sugars in the grains have naturally fermented into alcohol. Um, and so once people discovered this, they would have said, well, how can we make this happen, you know, a bit more often? And we see this, you know, there is there's evidence that some primates, so so some, uh, you know, chimpanzees and so on, they will they will seek out fruits that have slightly they've gone off a bit. They've started to ferment and there's alcohol. I mean, it turns out the alcohol really? content. Yeah. Right. So even if, if you eat a banana, the, you know, a, a banana is about half a percent alcohol by volume. Um, so, you know, there's naturally small amounts of alcohol in fruit. And then if you let the fruit go off, it starts to starts to ferment. Um, and if you try and store grapes, you know, then it starts to, you know, they the grape juice starts to ferment. So, uh, but anyway, what would, would have happened with these with these grain sort of porridges is people would have said, well, how can we how can we make this happen? And they would have realized that you make a soup and you leave it for a couple of days and then it starts to ferment. And if you put some fruit in there as well, then you're providing more sugar to ferment into alcohol and that makes it stronger. So at some point, people figured this out. And, um, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that there's this theory that the reason why people settled down and they switched from being nomadic hunter-gatherer bands that moved around to being farmers who were settled in one place and were reliant in particular on grain crops, so wheat and barley and rye and things like that, um, is that those are the crops you can make into beer. So if you start to associate beer, if you, in particular, if you start to give it religious significance, if you start to use it in rituals and you need to maintain the supply of beer, then you need to maintain the supply of those grain crops. And that would give you a reason to settle down and adopt agriculture. So obviously we can't, you know, we can't be sure that this is the case. But what we can do is we can look around the world and we can say that whichever continent you look on, um, 10,000 years ago, people are taking grain crops, whether it's corn in the Americas, whether it's wheat and barley in, uh, in Eurasia, whether it's rice um, in East Asia, they are taking these grain crops and making them into beer. Oh, it's actually millet as well in, um, in China. Um, so this is, seems to be a universal thing. I can't remember, is it sorghum in Africa? But wherever you look, people are making grain crops into beer. So that seems to be a universal thing. And that would give you an incentive to set, settle down and... and um, you know, start to uh, be a settled rather than nomadic. And, uh, you know, some people have said that was the biggest mistake in history, switching from being nomadic to being settled, because in many other ways, you know, it's it's much worse lifestyle to be settled in one place. Um, you have a, a, you know, lower diversity of your, of your diet and, uh, you know, and so on. But one of the things it does is it guarantees the supply of beer. So this is the beer theory of civilization. And, um, you know, we're never going to be able to, to check whether it's right <laughs> or wrong, but I think it's pretty plausible. Um, you know, I was a big fan of beer myself, you know, if it's like, well, you could be a nomad and wander around and have no beer, or you could be settled in one place and you can have beer, whatever you like it, then I'm going to take the beer. So, um, yeah. So, so beer isn't so much, um, dis it's not so much invented as discovered. And, um, and once people discover how to make it, then they kind of pursue that. And then by the, by the Egyptian period, you know, we know the Egyptians had 15 or so different recipes for different kinds of beer and they would put different things in the beers. You know, they put dates Whoa. in a beer to make it stronger. They would have, you know, the children drank beer. So you'd send your children to school with beer, but that would be very weak beer. What we would call table beer or, 
or um, small beer. Um, so there was this whole spectrum of beers, and you know that's evolved by about sort of four thousand years ago. So yeah, it's it's absolutely you know central. To the first civilizations that we see emerging in Mesopotamia and Egypt, the main drink is beer, and it's it's a currency. It's the default drink, and so I think that really does you know that does support the idea that beer played this you know pivotal role in switching people from being nomadic to being settled. Mm-hmm. Well, and like reading your book too, I learned a lot about how just how th- these different beverages were even made. And uh, wine is is similar to beer, where it's just fermented grapes or, or fruit, right? Well, the big difference with wine is that you need pottery to make it. So you can make beer because you you can ferment beer in a couple of days. So this beer here has um has it's brewed for what three days no four days something like that it's it's you know it's i've made it in a week basically um and you can make beer much more Mm quick you can make beer in two or three days so um whereas wine it does take longer and you do need pottery so we think beer is probably more ancient but that said the architectural sorry the archaeological um evidence is you know we have there are pots that have been found in the Zagros mountains of what is now Iran from about 5400 BC. And they are the oldest evidence of fermented beverages and they are evidence for making wine. And that you, that's what you would expect because wine requires pottery and um, beer does not. So you would not find archaeological evidence for beer, but you would find it for wine because you would find pots that have wine residues on them. Um, so once you've got these big um, earthenware pots and you sink them in the ground and they're probably originally fridges basically so you bury things in the ground um the ground is cold once you go two or three feet down into the ground it's it's you know pretty cold all year round so you get you make these great big pots mm-hmm. and you dig a hole and you stick them in the ground and you can refrigerate things in them and so if you start to try and refrigerate grapes what's going to happen is that the weight of the grapes at the top is going to squash the grapes at the bottom and you're going to get um, you're going to get grape juice and you're, and then the wine is, the grape juice is going to ferment. And so again, people noticed this and they were like, well, I've taken all these grapes out, but the bottom ones are all rotten, but boy, is the liquid at the, it, you know, I drank some of it and it's fantastic. So then they started to ask, how can we make more of it? So obviously you squash the grapes and then you get more grape, grape juice out of it. And then you, 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 you know, they, they start to figure out how to, how to make uh, wine in larger quantities. And we can see there are wineries in the Zagros Mountains, in something like the 6th millennium BC. Um, so you do need pottery to do that, which you don't need for beer. Um, but you can then you know, industrialise that that process and you can, you can make large quantities of it. Um, and so then you get this sort of interesting contrast between beer and wine. So Mesopotamia, they're mostly growing grain crops because Mesopotamia is, is much hotter and they're, they're making beer. And then you've got, um, in the mountains, they've got... Uh, Zagros Mountains, they're making wine and they're sending the wine in boats down to Mesopotamia. And the Mesopotamian sources talk about wine as excellent beer of the mountains. So in other words, they think of it as a kind of beer, just a really good kind of beer. And I think this also reflects the fact that modern beer has hops in it, which is a very recent addition. So that's a kind of 13th, 14th century addition. So, you know, it's only in the last thousand years we've started putting hops into beer. Previously, beer didn't have hops and it tasted a lot more wine-like. And if you've ever had a beer without hops in it, and there are some you can get sort of, you know, recreations of ancient beer, they have to say they're not very nice. Um, and uh, they have things like juniper in them and various mm. herbs that are trying to use other things to balance the sweetness of the malt. But 
um, they are much more whiny. And there is this sort of natural continuum between beer and wine because those early beers would have had fruit thrown into them as well and it would not have had hops. So they were kind of a mixture of fermented grain with fermented fruit and so they were kind of wine-like. So you can see why the Mesopotamian sources refer to wine as excellent beer of the mountains because as far as they're concerned it's just a really good kind of kind of beer anyway um what that means is because the beer has to be brought down to Mesopotamia um why sorry because the wine has to be brought down to Mesopotamia the wine is a, is a high status drink it's a more expensive drink and it becomes associated with the nobility mm-hmm. and so on and you get this in in Egypt as well you can see that wine they do start to you know cultivate their own grapes and so on um but most people drink beer so the people who build the pyramids are drinking beer and it's just the royal family and the nobility who drink wine so you get this idea very early on that wine is a higher status drink than beer. And then what happens in the Greek and the Roman world is because those parts of the world are so well suited to growing grapes that you get much more uh, wine cultivation and they kind of turn their noses up at beer and they say, well, those previous cultures, you know, they, they only drank beer, but we drink wine. In fact, even our slaves drink drink wine, you know. I mean, in fact, they're drinking pretty horrible wine, but, um, <laughs> but you know, the 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 wine is that they take it as a sign of civilization that everyone in their culture gets to drink wine and then then they have this idea that there are these different gradations of wine and the emperor drinks the best wine and the slaves drink the worst wine and you know the soldiers get given their daily ration of wine and uh, and so on and again that's a very ancient idea um that we still have today when the boss comes around you get a you get a slightly better bottle of wine than you normally would um, because you know it's a more you know more important occasion, or you know someone's birthday or Christmas or whatever, you you maybe get a better better bottle of wine than you would normally have. So um, again, that's a very very ancient idea. And so that that's so interesting because um, where it just kind of comes from, uh, you know, where beer was just kind of easier to make, it was there. Wine was you know you had to transport it; it was tougher to make. You had to have pottery, like you said. So that is that just kind of where the idea arises that wine is higher status be just from the fact that it's harder to get yeah i think so i mean so those early cultures it was it was harder to get and then also you get the spread of wine from the eastern mediterranean around the rest of the mediterranean and so the people who are bringing the wine in um and starting the wine cultivation you know in north africa in western um in the western mediterranean south of france in spain and so on um they are bringing culture from the eastern mediterranean so wine and culture become very closely associated one of the things that happens you know one of the great trading nations at that point is phoenicia um and they are as well as spreading wine they're spreading the alphabet and the alphabet we have now is descended from the phoenician alphabet um and you know one of the reasons that they they did so well that people were interested in you know trading with them and they were able to set up all these trading ports and all the rest of it was that they were bringing wine from the eastern mediterranean so you know wine and culture are, are very closely um, aligned and then and then you know again greek culture you know, the romans very much want to imitate greek culture so the greeks have these particular drinking rituals with particular drinking vessels and so on and painted vases with you know pictures of stuff and the romans are like yeah we really want to show how sophisticated we are so we're going to copy that and we're going to do our version of that and so it becomes this you know totem of civilization of being cultured of understanding wine and we still have this today you know it's like what's the worst thing that can happen you know you're going for an for an interview where with somebody um you know for a for an investment bank and uh you're in you know you're in midtown new york and they go right you order the wine and they give you the wine list and that's like you know 
<laughs> a lot of people's worst nightmare because they are judging you based on your ability to pick a wine right why is that um mm-hmm. and it's because you know it's it's how how well do you understand this ladder of of quality and how how you know how sophisticated are you really um and uh you know that's a, that's a very ancient idea so there you go i'm sure that's not happened to a lot of people but yeah. the, the whole kind of here's the wine list you decide that is that is very much a, a a challenge um and it's also kind of you know how well do you understand the gradation of these wines how 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 will this reflect on how will your choice of wine reflect on you what does it mean about you um and that's a, mm-hmm. a really really old idea there's a a, a particular story in this book that i love which is um in one of rome's you know interminable civil wars uh a roman general who he's on the run and he's you know, he's on the losing side of a civil war and he goes and hides in the house of a friend who's a much low, lower social class and um he's like hiding in a cupboard under the stairs and his friend says well we need to you know we need to send out for better wine because the wine we drink in the house is not suitable for this you know illustrious guest we have hiding under the stairs so he sends his servant down the street to go to the wine shop and buy some fancier wine and the wine merchant's like why are you buying such fancy wine you know you don't normally buy wine like this and the servant's like well yeah we've got a we've got like a really fancy unofficial guest hiding under the stairs um and this gives the game away and the um the uh illustrious guest is duly discovered by you know the opposing side of the civil war and decapitated but it's all because of the wine because you know you can't possibly serve somebody the wrong wine that would just you know go against all the all the norms of roman etiquette now it's not i have to say that's you know an extreme case that is not something that is normally something that people have to deal with but this idea that you know when you have a, a fancy visitor you get a slightly fancier bottle of wine it's a very old idea mm-hmm. well yeah it's so fun to know to learn this stuff because it's honestly something you don't even think about it's just kind of uh like you just grow up in it and that's just the way it is, you know, that you serve, you got to learn if you want to fit in, in certain circles, you got to learn how to pick the right wine, but you, you never really stop to think about where it comes from, but that's what, you know, you kind of uncover, which is, which is what I love about your book. But, um, let's talk about, uh, uh, coffee. I I'm so, I've always been interested in coffee, um, and the origins of coffee. I had always heard the, uh, the goats, the dancing right. goats, you know, eating the berries story. But what's the, is that the, is that the truth? Well, we don't really know. I mean, it's, it's from kind of Yemen, Ethiopia, that part of the world. And there is this story, yes, that, you know, a goat herd notices the, the goats are eating the berries and he, they kind of get a bit frisky. And he's like, maybe there's something to it. But it, it does seem to be the case that, you know, people in that part of the world realize that if you take these berries and you roast them and then you grind the, the, the roasted berries and then you make a drink out of it, that it does have this sort of invigorating property to it. And so it's a drink from the Arab world and then you get the rise of Islam and it then becomes this alternative to alcohol. So alcohol, you know, is, is prohibited in the, in the Muslim world. Um, and so the, the taverns become, they're replaced by coffee houses. And what's really interesting is that when coffee spreads to Europe, it's not just the drink that goes to Europe. It's the idea of the coffee house that goes as well. And the idea that the coffee house is like a more respectable place to get together and drink with your friends than a tavern. Um, and you would never like try and do business in a tavern because that would just be like a disreputable place where everyone gets drunk. But a coffee house is, you know, is much fancier and it would have you know mirrors on the wall and it would have all the, you know, the latest newsletters and pamphlets. And this is all just at the point where, um, you know, printing has taken off 
off and and the idea of sort of exchange of information through through newsletters and pamphlets and newsletters is all just is all starting um and newspapers you know all of that sort of information uh, society is starting and the idea that some people's jobs are you know involve sitting at desks and shuffling information and bits of paper uh you know the the original information workers um that's all happening in the 17th century in, in in Europe. And so coffee is the perfect drink for those people because it sharpens the mind and it gets them going in the morning. And when they're doing all of their pen pushing and, you know, clerical work, it's um, it, it makes them better at their jobs. And so you get this explosion of coffee houses across Europe, but particularly in, in Europe, particularly in Britain, particularly in London. Um, and, you know, you think there are a lot of Starbucks around now. If you look at the number of coffee houses per capita in London in sort of 1680, 1690, it's actually higher than it, it is now. Uh, there are so many of them. And people use the coffee Whoa. houses as information exchanges. So you would say, because we didn't have street numbering in those days, so you'd say, write to me at the Rainbow Coffee House. And so, you know, people would write to me at the Rainbow Coffee House. And then I would go to the Rainbow Coffee House to check my mail and I'd read the latest news and um, and then I would just, you know, discuss things. And the different coffee houses were associated with different subjects so you know the scientists went to the rainbow and the you know the the uh the baltic coffee house was where all the people in, interested in baltic coffee you know shipping went to and lloyd's coffee house was where you went if you were um you know involved in insurance for for for, for shipping and the you know the clerics went to a different coffee house and so different different you know professions went to different coffee houses and if you wanted to catch up on what was happening in a particular field you would just go to the right coffee house and so you know you would see people moving between coffee houses and so sometimes you could rent a desk at a coffee house and you could say you'll find me at the at the baltic coffee house on you know thursday afternoons if you want to do business with me and then many of these coffee houses turn into businesses and you know the jonathan's coffee house becomes the london stock exchange lloyd's coffee house becomes the insurance business uh, and so on and so on so you you do get this sort of um, innovation that's happening where uh, exchange of ideas one of the reasons for this is that um coffee houses supposedly have this sort of egalitarian social approach the idea is that you know when you step into a coffee house everyone is an equal and everyone can talk to everyone else and you can exchange ideas so it's a place where ideas can cross social barriers in ways they couldn't before now we don't know how true this really is there's a bit of a debate about whether women were allowed into coffee houses or not it seems that they were in some coffee houses and not others it wasn't an absolute ban um but certainly the idea that um people of different classes could could meet in coffee houses and discuss things meant that you had more of a kind of social mixing and more ideas mixing. And that would have, you know, that would explain why you get this incredible, um, not just scientific and technological innovation, but financial innovation coming out of the coffee houses of the, of the 17th century, both in, in Britain and in, in Holland. And then in the 18th century in France as well, the French revolution is really something that, you know, emerges from coffee houses, but people are discussing how, unhappy they are with the political situation um so yeah you get this kind of social media effect where the coffee houses are information exchanges where people people who would otherwise not encounter each other and ideas that would otherwise not mix um encounter each other and mix and so i find that a, i you know i'm particularly fascinated by that period because it feels so um sort of relevant to the way things are today and you know if i could get in a time machine go back to any period it would for me it would be london in the 1660s i would take a lot of antibiotics obviously <laughs> with me uh but um you know that's the that's the period <laughs> I'd, I, I'd like to go back to because it's it's um it's a time when you know there's an enormous amount of innovation happening and it's all fueled by coffee 
Yeah, it's so interesting how it's they the, how those coffee shops developed like their own topics. I I never had known that or even thought of that, but it makes so much sense. It's almost like you know a specialized. Like you sign up for a, a newsletter or something, or, or go to a blog. Yeah, news, newsletters exactly. That you're interested so, in. so we think Substack is a is a new thing now. But if you look at the original subscription newsletters, they arise in actually 1620 in the 1620s in England, and it's because people um, want to know what's going on with the with the gossip in in England. And then when the coffee houses get going, the coffee houses end up being the best place to go and gather the the gossip and the information because you can just go to the different coffee houses and find out what you know people are talking about in different fields and if you look at the diarists of the of the period you know Samuel Pepys and John Evelyn um you know they're going to the coffee houses and they are they you get a flavor of the extraordinary you know it's it's a it's a sort of um it's a bit like when you when you go to twitter you know whatever you think of twitter the, certainly when you go to twitter you, you you can never be quite sure what you're going to see you're just going to get a whole load of random thoughts and ideas from the people that you follow and that's what going to the coffee house was like it was this sort of you know potluck um what are you going to get who are you going to hear about you could you it was just this incredibly um engaging incredibly compelling environment where you would be exposed to new ideas and uh, and we can kind of relate to that today because that's what makes us click on our social media it's like you know what random thing are we going to see and we're going to keep scrolling until we get you know something fun um and that's what that's what coffee houses were like you would go to a coffee house and you'd be surprised you'd hear some new idea you'd discover some new thing um and so i just find that very you know it's a very pre-modern thing it's it looks like a fragment of the modern world in the past and that's really that's you know the the broader picture of all of my writing is i'm trying to find pieces of the present in the past and the past in the present and try to sort of connect them up and say to people you know we can understand the past better um if we if we can find these connections that the people in the past were really not different from us in many ways and we can understand them better and at the same time we can understand things we're going through now that we think are unprecedented and unusual have never happened before well actually a lot of them have um and if you look at you know how people dealt with you know problems that we have now in the past then maybe we can learn from that so that's the kind of meta meta story of of a lot of my writing which is sort of trying to connect up um these these different time periods and and do this sort of virtual time traveling Mm -hmm. well and i mean it's so clear how we you know we still have we have coffee houses for the same similar reasons you know uh, today and it, it still exists really it's still the drink of innovation um, so yeah so, so how you, did so yeah yeah if you have a you know you go to a conference what's the drink where they serve in the in the coffee break you know what's the drink you have a meeting of, you know and also the the sort of what are the hotbeds of innovation in the world at the moment you know the pacific northwest where you've got you've got amazon and you've got microsoft and, yeah, it's also they're like coffee <laughs> coffee central right and i don't think this is a coincidence this is <laughs> you know so so yeah i think there's a there's a very deep connection between coffee and innovation Mm-hmm. So how does um, how does tea kind of align with um, the the rise of coffee? Is it a similar thing where people are using the caffeine content to get going in the morning? Um, not quite so much. I mean, tea tea arises, tea appears about the same time in London, certainly in the sort of sixteen fifties. Tea has come a lot further because it had to come from China, and it's a lot more expensive, and so coffee is. Uh, more available is cheaper is you know you have the coffee houses you also have um, chocolate so the coffee houses are serving hot chocolate which is another new drink there's a bit of skepticism about chocolate certainly in 
in London at the time because um, it's associated with France and Spain. So it's associated with um, with Catholic powers, and you're a bit of a you know. There's a political connotation to drinking chocolate which is that you know maybe it means you're actually a catholic which is you know frowned upon um in some circles at that point um so tea is slightly different we have evidence of tea uh coming into europe you know around that time um the big the big thing that makes that gets tea going is that tea is incredibly light and the east india company which is bringing uh, which has the monopoly on uh eastern trade uh for britain is um, the captains of those ships are allowed to bring a certain amount of stuff in, you know, for their own private trade. And what they bring in is regulated not by volume, but by weight. So what they're looking for is a very lightweight product that they can bring a large quantity of um, that's very, very valuable. Um, and tea fits the bill perfectly, particularly when um, Charles II gets married so the king in the 1660s he marries a portuguese princess and part of the dowry he's promised a chest full of gold uh, or chest you know of great value turns out it's full of tea he's very disappointed because he was actually hoping for gold but what's really happening here is that he's been given as part of the wedding settlement a portuguese trading port in india on the way on the route to 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 china and um and so it's easier to get hold of tea and tea starts to become fashionable in the english court in the 1660s and 1670s and the the, the ability to start to drink it um and then what happens in the in the in the 1700s between 1700 and 1800 tea goes from being something that is very expensive and only drunk by the nobility to being something that is incredibly incredibly cheap and is even drunk by you know the homeless but it's available you know they're drinking really low quality tea but it's you know it's something that everybody it, it feels that they are entitled to um and so part of this is this economic mm-hmm. factor that the that the captains can make a lot of money from it. And then, you know, just generally the East India Company becomes so powerful. And then you get the whole, you know, Boston Tea Party and, um, you know, all of the political connotations of taking um, tea across the Atlantic to the to the British colonies in the Americas and the colonists saying, well, we don't really want to pay tax on this tea because that sort of suggests that we have to pay tax to London, even though we don't have a vote and you get this whole no taxation without representation and, and so on and so on. Um, so it ends up being this this incredible commodity that joins up the Americas with Europe, with with China, with Asia. Um, and, you know, with consequences that we're still feeling today. I mean, you know, what's going on in Hong Kong right now, the the Chinese are completely squelching the, um, you know, the the any vestige of democracy in Hong Kong. Why is there any vestige of democracy in Hong Kong? It was because uh, Hong Kong was, you know, for a while, it was this British trading port um, uh, in in that part of the world. And that was the result of the Opium War. And the Opium War was a result of the fact that the British wanted to maintain their ability to bring tea in from China. And they were paying for it with opium because they didn't want to pay for it, pay for it with um with with silver anymore so they were growing opium in india and using the opium to buy the but so this is all a you know frankly terrible period in in british history but we're still feeling the consequences of it today because that was why as a result of the settlement of the opium war the british ended up with this port in hong kong and then it got handed back to china in 1997 and then you've got this whole deal that was supposed to be you know um, it was supposed to be a democracy and now the Chinese are saying, actually, you know what, we don't think we want that. But this is, you know, this is something that goes back a very, very long way and is, you know, it's something that's still playing out today and is part of the long, long history of tea in many ways. So 
you know, when you when you drink tea, there are all of these, you know, whether you're whether you're drinking. I mean, the Boston Tea Party. People say in America, people don't drink tea; they drink coffee because they didn't want to drink the drink that was associated with the the British Empire. It's actually not quite true. Uh, coffee only really overtook tea in popularity in the US in the mid um, 1800s, so about 18 sort of 1840, 1850, and that was because there were so many immigrants at that point from northern europe from scandinavia from from germany which were were, you know predominantly coffee drinking not tea drinking nations and so they brought this habit of coffee drinking with them so it's not the it's not the boston tea party um but even so the idea that these drinks have political connotations you know we still recognize that and those those political stories are are still playing out today Mm -hmm. yeah that's something that i always thought or been taught, I don't know either one, but that uh, it was kind of the the result of the Boston Tea Party and all this, that is the reason why America drinks coffee, but not really the case. Not really, no. So it's it's actually a bit later. And um, yeah, so it's all in the book. Check it out. Yeah. <laughs> and also, no taxation is, without yeah. representation is not... Originally, you get that in the... I think it's the 1760s. It's to do with the... Um, they So the the British first tried to impose a tax on molasses brought from the French sugar islands. So the French aren't allowed to make rum because that would undermine the French drink of brandy. So the French have the French sugar islands have all these leftover molasses. They don't have anything to do with them. You can make rum out of them. So they sell them to New England and the New England distillers make rum out of them. And it turns out to be this massive you know, export commodity, in particular because you can use rum as a commodity on the west coast of Africa to buy slaves. And so it becomes part of the slave trade. Um, and so when uh, when London says you should not be buying molasses from the French islands anymore because they are our enemy, um, and then the, the, the New England rum traders are saying, well, why? Why should we be paying attention to you in London? Because, you know, we don't have any... You want to, you want to tax these molasses, but why should we pay that tax? We don't have any any clout we don't have any any vote so no taxation without representation is actually an earlier thing than tea but then tea is what you know tips the balance and you get the boston tea party and you know the revolutionary war and all, all, all that sort of thing but it's actually been brewing for as it were uh, for for decades before that yeah. yeah it's so interesting how we just get like taught a certain narrative in in american schools at least and it's not really the full story it seems like but whatever um well let's talk about I, this is so fun, Tom. I, I love this. I feel like I feel like you're just a master at like any drink that you have. Anytime you sit down with somebody, whether it's coffee or beer or wine, you're just uh, spewing facts about all this stuff. Well, I hope yes, spewing. That's not something you want to do with drink, but um, but yes, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of facts out there, and um, and I think a, a lot of history can be related to drink. So, where do you want to go to next? I mean, we got to talk about cola. I, mm. I've huge soda fan love coca-cola you know been to the whole this the factory you know in atlanta georgia and done all that stuff so um yeah where does where does soda come from well isn't that amazing because the, the whole thing about the coca-cola museum and i've been there too it's kind of amazing because it's sort of advertising you pay to watch right i mean you know that <laughs> it is yeah. yeah right it's a total advertising experience and you see the bottling line you go wow this is great um yeah so cola is interesting because it's um it's originally a health drink and so they're soda water and fizzy water you know you you get these natural these springs that have naturally fizzy water and so you get you get people starting to bottle the um the soda water as as sort of tonic waters um and then you get soda fountains and people making these uh different mixtures that you can put in with your your soda drink so when you go for a 
you go to the pharmacist and you have a fizzy drink, you choose what gets mixed in with it. And so originally Coca-Cola is this thing that gets mixed with soda water and it's originally designed as a headache cure. Um, and it's got caffeine um, in it and it's got a bit of cocaine in it as well, originally. Um, and that, yeah. you know, if I don't know if you have a headache, I mean, very often if you have a headache that's caused by, by caffeine, actually having some more caffeine can can help resolve that but um, but it's essentially marketed as a health drink and it proves to be very popular because normally um these soda drinks are something that people drink in the in the summer and then in the winter they don't want to drink cold drinks but coca-cola proves to be so popular that people still want to order it in the winter um and it's a you know it's sold as a soda fountain mixture and then uh ultimately it you know somebody says well why can't we bottle it and so the the rights to to bottle it are, are sold to some entrepreneurs who who then start putting it in bottles and then they can sell it at a much wider range of you know they can go to fairs and sell it in bottles and um and it really takes off and then you get prohibition particularly you get prohibition in um you know in some of the southern states in the 1880s and that really boosts the popularity of it as well and then when you get prohibition in the 1920s more broadly in the u.s um coca-cola is a is an acceptable drink you can drink it throughout the day and it's you know it's also what's interesting about it is it's a form of caffeine that um is acceptable to serve to children so you know we don't think of children drinking um tea and coffee really but we do we for some reason we think it's fine for them to drink coca-cola yeah. and then of course you know maybe they get a bit frantic and run around and go, go a bit crazy but and, and obviously we don't have coca-cola for breakfast um although actually some people do in some parts of the world some parts of the u.s you do have coca-cola for breakfast but um but it's weird because it sort of um crosses borders that um that other caffeinated drinks were not able to cross so firstly this idea that children can drink it but secondly because of what happens in the second world war um the the coca-cola company goes to the u.s government and says you know coca-cola is a is a vital supply um and therefore we should not be subject to the sugar rationing and the government says that's fine and in return the coca-cola company says that it will make coca-cola available to u.s service people around the world and so they 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 end up supplying coca-cola to you know, to the army and the navy and the air force all around the world, and this this essentially Coca Cola spreads around the world on the coattails of the U.S. military. Um, and by the time the war is over, you know, Coca Cola is everywhere except Antarctica, which is you know the only the only continent but it's where they haven't got distribution. Um, and so it becomes really associated with with America and with globalization and with the negative connotations of that. So, you know, in, in Europe, in, um, after the after the Second World War, there are people who are worried that Coca-Cola factories are sort of secret American military facilities and that there are like nuclear weapons hidden in them. And people talk about Coca-Colonization and all this sort of thing. And, you know, um, so some countries try to ban Coca-Cola and, and you know, the Soviet you know the soviet union they don't have coca-cola uh, which is an opening for pepsi because it's not coca-cola it's like the the anti-coca-cola so you get pepsi behind the iron curtain um and then when the berlin wall comes down what do the east europeans what do the east germans want to drink they want to drink coca-cola because that's the that's the western drink that they were previously denied so it ends up having all of these um connotations similarly in the arab world um you know there's a whole history of uh uh you know how the Arab-Israeli conflict is sort of reflected in attitudes to Coca-Cola. 
Um, so it ends up just being this incredibly political drink that just sort of is America and globalization in a bottle. And what's interesting is when I first wrote this book, I wrote the book in 2004, and it was very much at the height of globalization. Um, and globalization, if you look at the numbers uh, for, you know, the growth of global trade, um, it peaked around or basically peaked with the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008. And since then, the world has stepped back from globalization. More trade is regional. So most trade in Europe now is within the European region. And most trade in Asia is is within, you know, with, is regional. Most of it is not global. Um and in fact, the same has happened with drinks. So, so at the same time, people started to step away from Coca-Cola and started to move back towards healthier drinks, healthier options, in particular, bottled water. Now, bottled water has a whole load of problems of its own. I mean, you know, why you should drink bottled water if you are in a country that has safe tap water, which many people are, um, it, it doesn't make sense. If you, you should just drink water out of the tap, it's, it's you know... It, doesn't make sense to and obviously if you haven't got access to safe tap water then it's a different story um but what was very interesting when i went back to revise this book at the beginning of uh, well the end of 2019 it must have been um it was very interesting to see that globalization and the uh, the sales of coca-cola had peaked at the same time and that um that these healthier drinks um uh, you know less sugary basically water and various teas and so on uh, started to come up the field just at the point when globalization was declining so that i felt that sort of reinforced the thesis that coca-cola is the sort of house drink of of globalization and it's its fortunes have have risen and fallen alongside the fortunes of 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 america broadly but also the fortunes of you know the idea of of globalization mhm yeah no well and you mentioned too about how like Coca-Cola kind of just represents like Americana and stuff too. And then you mentioned one story I loved in your book was about, um, it was like a Soviet general who had to get it. He loved Coca-Cola so much, but he had to get it disguised and shipped to him. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. So this is the story. I think it was, was he called um, Zukov? Anyway, he was a, he was a a Soviet general and he, um, he loved Coca-Cola and he was involved in some of the negotiations after the, after the second world war. Um, and so he, they made special cola for him that was colorless. So I don't know if you know. Some people may remember Tab, which I think was basically like cola but without the without the color. Um, so it was very similar. And they mm-hmm. they shipped it to him in these special bottles with red stars because obviously being seen to drink Coca Cola would be you know not on for a, a Soviet general. And then we've we've had the same again. So after um, after the first Gulf War, it was Norman Schwarzkopf, I think, was um, you know he he gave this the press conference. Um, you know, declaring victory and so on. And there was this big fight of which drink would he would he have? And Pepsi won. I think he had ended up with a can of Pepsi. But uh, after the second Gulf War, when um, when American troops, you know, had, had taken Baghdad and they had a barbecue on the top of um, of uh, Saddam Hussein's palace, and of course they drank Coca Cola and they had hot dogs and hamburgers and they had a you know kind of American food and it was and at the same time opponents of america were expressing their opposition to all of this by pouring coca-cola you know down the drain pouring it onto the streets because the drink represented america and and therefore you know if you wanted to oppose america you would you would use this this vital medium of of coca-cola to do it so again it just you know this is a this is this is something that's happened for thousands of years the idea that that drinks have these political connotations and whether it's you know you're a roman emperor and you've got to have the 
the Falernium, which is the best wine for the for the Roman emperor to have, or whether it's the idea that that beer is the drink of you know the of, of civilization because it means you're not a hunter gatherer anymore, or whether it's Coca Cola is associated with America. I mean, it's you know the, these things. This is a very very long story, a very old story, and you know tea. You know tea. It's always the british having tea and being obsessed with with uh with having tea and it's always you know the sun never sets on the british empire that means that you know it's always tea time somewhere you know these these are just you know very very ancient connections and um and they have a very deep history and and you know i think just pointing them out to people now it changes the way you think about the drinks that you drink mm-hmm. well what's so crazy too to me is that it's you know these six drinks are basically everything that we still drink it's maybe there's you know the different varieties they got they got coffee coke now or they combine two of them or whatever but it's it's still what we drink yeah exactly i mean um you know there are some drinks that that i have so coke so uh, coffee is the drink i focus on in the 17th century and 18th century and you know chocolate was part of it so maybe chocolate gets a bit of a you know get a bit of a short straw gin similarly you know gin is a big deal in britain because of there's a whole load of deregulation in britain to basically make the farmers happy um, so to create a market for the uh the oversupply of of, uh, of wheat there's this there's this gin craze that happens in the early 1700s um so but i you know and so i i, I don't really go into that and then there's you know there's some interesting uh, new drinks coming out of of china now uh, so they have their own particular spirit, but then you have, you know, other other drinks that are popular in Asia. So I'm not claiming this is absolutely everything. And this is a very, you know, I'm the first to put my hand up and admit this is a very Western centric, you know, Eurocentric view of history. Um, but uh, the fact that, you know, drinks play a role, even if you just take that narrow view and say, here's a here's a version of world history. The fact that drinks are so important in it. Um, you know, it's not it's not an accident. I don't think. Um, you know, what people what people eat and drink is is what powers. You know, what keeps them alive, and it what it's what powers civilization and what powers history. So I think looking at those sort of everyday aspects of of what they do, instead of just looking at like who was the president, who was the prime minister, who were the generals, and who won the battles, I'm saying, what are people drinking? What are they eating? What are they all doing? Um, I think there's a different way of looking at it, and I think it's a you know a valuable and and a useful alternative perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's it's a lot more fun to to learn about history that way. I think, and and it is extremely important, like you have demonstrated for sure. This the beverages you know have shaped you know cultures and and countries and policies. It's it's crazy. It is. Uh, I like. I'm a diver, so when I go diving in the Mediterranean, particularly around. Um, Sicily, but other other bits of the Mediterranean, you get to, you see the amphoras on the ground, um, and uh, I'm particularly struck where the so the different Greek islands they all made their own wines and they all had different shaped amphoras and it was sort of very very early branding. So in the same way that you know you have different logos now for you know different brands, they had different shaped amphoras and some of them they would actually put the shape of the amphora on the coins from that island. So Chios was a Greek island that had a particularly you know it's particularly well known for their wine. Kian wine was very good. And if you look at Kian coins, they have the they have this particular shape of the amphora with the kind of long handles and this kind of stuff. And and so when I'm diving, I'll see an amphora and I'll go, oh, that's the top of an amphora. It looks looks like it's Kian. So I'll take a picture of it. And it turns out when I then go and look up these pictures, you can date the amphoras to particular centuries and particular islands. Um, and you can 
you can you can figure all of this this stuff out uh so you've got this sort of fingerprint of what people were drinking at different times and you know and it's all just right there in the in the pottery um which is a particularly crazy way that the history of drinking comes back to me in a in a different in a different way but um but yeah i mean it's just it once you once you're kind of attuned to this way of looking at the world you just see it everywhere and you see starbucks and you go well starbucks is you know it's sort of a continuation of the 17th century coffee house culture and um you know the fact that they have internet in there is what you'd expect because people went to the coffee houses in in those days in the 1660s to get their mail and to get the news and so you know of course that's of course you want wi-fi so yeah it's um i love these parallels between what we do today and what people did in the past totally man tom so fun uh this was great we got i feel like we you know we covered a bunch of stuff but this is only like a small fraction of what's in your book so let's tell people listening where they can get your book, where they can find more info about you, social media, whatever we should send people to. Well, the main thing is the book is called A History of the World in Six Glasses. Originally came out in 2005, but I updated it and revised it to a new edition that came out in 2020. Um, And yeah, it's, um, you know, there's a whole load of teenagers who've been forced to read it for AP World History classes, uh, who then send me emails saying... (laughs) I have a few questions about your book and want me to do their homework. And, but I'm always, you know, I, I, I try to do my best to help them. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's great. But the other thing about this book is, um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's the best selling book I've ever written. And it, what put it on the New York times bestseller list was father's day in 2006. Um, and it was because, uh, one of the U S TV channels did a feature about this book, which they then ran again just before father's day. And it, it connects people who are, it allows people who are really you know interested in drink to say if your dad is like really into whiskey or really into into beer or really into wine or whatever um it it gives you a sort of bridge to talk about those things because if you're not really into whiskey or not into wine but you're interested in history or interested in in culture you're interested in the way the world came to be this connects those two things and so what i'm trying to do is show how this very very narrow specific thing drinks which some people are obviously really obsessed with in some ways and i would put myself in that group um does also connect to these much much broader forces of history and so what i'm you know that that gives people common ground um to talk to to talk to people you know uh, about these about these things because these are these are things that you know are of broader interest it's not just uh, a subject for for people who are really into beer or wine or spirits or coffee or whatever, uh, this connects to all sorts of aspects of everyday life. And I think the more we can emphasize those connections, the better. Cool, man. Well, thank you for, you know, for writing the book, for sharing the story. And uh, thanks for coming on, Tom. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And cheers. And that's it. 108 episode number is done uh thanks tom for coming on and sharing all that stuff hope you enjoyed it the listener talking to you and uh that was great i seriously enjoyed that i got so many facts now to share at the at the bar at the coffee house at the the tea shop uh at the soda fountain but um yeah like tom said you know he, he said it great. Maybe you know uh, a family member who loves a particular drink. They love whiskey. They make their own beer, anything like that. A friend who does 
is super into soda. I love soda. Uh, maybe send this podcast off to them. I think they'd appreciate it. They'd probably love Tom's book as well. Again, that's a history of the world in six glasses. Um, so we love it. I love it when you share this podcast and the word of mouth spreads around the ether. Um, that's good. Oh, man, I feel like I'm rambling. This is Travis DeRose. You can find me on Instagram at Trav DeRose. Send me an email if you want with your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, ideas for new podcast episodes. That's always welcome. Uh, to Travis at curiosityness.com. Uh, that's it. I'll see you in episode 109. Goodbye.